0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as every week i'm glad that you are with me today and we're going to continue where we left off last week as we begin to think about how you operate a legal system that has rightful authority if there is no god such as described in the bible for those who may be just tuning in for the first time And haven't heard the previous episodes. We've been working off a law review article published by the late Yale law professor, Arthur Leff, published in the Duke Law Journal, entitled Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. He's been trying to explain how we can have a legal system that we ought to obey, that produces laws and commands that we ought to obey, if there is not a transcendent and eminent authority through whom, I guess I should say, or by whom the laws have been evaluated as right, constitutive of who we are and what is good. Okay. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at what he called the descriptivist model that law is good when it is produced according to the legal system that people are willing to obey. And he noted, of course, that that means that any law the system produces must be good if it produces it and the people are willing to obey it, which makes ethical considerations impossible. He then turned to the idea that, well, let's just treat everybody as if they're god and he uses the term godlets and he made the little joke that uh, let's pretend that we've we've not only killed god but we've uh, all ingested parts of him and each of us is now our own little godlet our own little ethical system and we concluded last week's episode with this statement it should come as no surprise that a system of Each God for himself is not by itself much of a solution to any basic problem of human society. And we want to pick up there today and begin to look at at the things that he next says. And you know, as I was putting these thoughts down and sort of outlining where we would go today, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 2 where the psalmist says the nations are raging against god they think they can break asunder his bond his yokes his rule and the god of heaven laughs and as we go through some of this today don't feel badly if you chuckle and say well that can't work or wow that doesn't work because that's true it doesn't And there isn't any final solution other than the God of the Bible. But we need to appreciate what other people are going to offer so that we will know how to evaluate what they offer and know how to respond effectively to what they're offering and get to the heart of the problem. And in fact, today, we're going to be closing with uh, uh, an exchange between Justice Clarence Thomas and the United States Attorney General's office in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Association that reversed Roe versus Wade. And it's a very telling exchange between the judge and the U.S. Attorney General's office. So, uh, picking up from there, Leff says there's not any way out of this um, we're all God's little godlets um, problem via agreement, either real or hypothetical. Absolutely nothing is gained by hypothesizing or even bringing about some contract or treaty among the monads. And that's his word for describing us as each having our own little ethical system about what they're permitted to do with or to each other. Under this view that we're godlets, he says, a promise ought to be kept only if each godlet thinks it ought to be kept. In other words, the value of promise keeping is no different from any other ethical judgment. So if I think keeping promises is ethical and good, and no matter what, lying, I mean, keeping a promise even to my hurt is a good value, then great. But if I don't, well, I'm not bound by any agreement. And, and my friends, I wanna mention that because so many Christians, as I've described in previous episodes and series, have fallen into this notion of society by contract because we have a constitution as if the constitution is is created out of thin air with no law behind its provisions by which we can judge its provisions, good or bad. And I, I'm just telling you, I see it all the time. We are so egalitarian that we think the only way for one person to assert authority over any other person is if we all come together and agree to do it. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through the episode. But what they're forgetting is that God has established hierarchies in his creation and hierarchies by definition include what we'll use um, the term head and submission. They require somebody at the head and a submissive person under the head. Okay, that's the biblical conception of hierarchy. Now, we hate that idea, I hate to say, in many circles today. Patriarchy is under attack, right? But it's because we've lost the notion That every hierarchy God establishes is bound and conditioned on covenants that actually are made by the parties toward each other, but ultimately to God. So the husband, as the head of the home, is bound by a covenantal arrangement established by God that you, husband, shall love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so that is the covenant you are making with me when you enter into the relationship with your wife. And, you know, one of the One of the things that I think has been interesting, because we've lost in the church, by and large, the notion of covenant, we've forgotten that there was a whole theology developed during the Reformation of what was called the eternal covenant, the covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, whereby the Son would lay aside His glory, talked about in Philippians chapter 2, take on the humiliation, we would say, of of human flesh, cloaking, covering the authority and the majesty that is his as God, submit to death, and then the Holy Spirit had, as part of the covenant, said, I will sustain, keep, and protect the Son of God, Jesus, in his fulfillment of all the requirements of the law, and raise him from the dead, and then apply the benefits, the righteousness of Christ to those for whom he died. So while there is no subordination of Godness in the Trinity, this concept of covenant and roles within covenants are there. So that even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read that Jesus, Was or or that God was the head of Jesus. So, anyway, because we've lost the notion of hierarchy, we have to default to something. And so, too many Christians just fall right in line with Rousseau and Locke. Okay, now let's keep moving on here. So, the question is what's left? If an agreement can't be binding on anybody, if he finds it its provisions or its requirements unethical, well, now what's left? And this is what Professor Leff writes. If we are to cope with the matter through a vote, it must be because of some rule that itself cannot be derived from any monad or combination thereof. All one has is the assumed conclusion that in cases of conflicting perfections, the largest number wins. And what he's saying is, majority vote, well, who said that wins? Where did that rule come from such that the majority rules ought to be obeyed? Think about the implications of that if you're ever on the short end of what the majority says. There's nobody to whom you can appeal, right? the so left then says, "Can we get out of our bind by deciding to pay attention to the quality of the ethical boxes?" Now what he's referring there to is the boxes that we would check for how we decide things by saying, well, some some views are more ethical than others some opinions are more ethical than others and he says no you can't do that because the whole premise of transferring authority from god to each of us is that nobody has the authority to assert a superiority over any other ethical godlet monad he puts it this way The shortest way to put the reason for why this doesn't work is this. A fundamental assumption of the perfect monad view is that no inquiry can be made of the quality of any ethical position held by any monad. Each one is his own God. That's the whole purpose of the godlet system to insulate fundamental ethical conclusions from any further examination by anybody outside of us. And he says, once you suggest a criteria that's outside of us or transcending us, well, we're back to recognizing someone or something in the place of God which necessarily means we're not godlets anymore. Left says, I'm making fun of all this, but I shouldn't. <laughs> he says, because the underlying impulse to rate certain positions over others is the understandable and perhaps unavoidable human desire to give human reason some role in ethical theory. And of course, that's exactly What Adam and Eve wanted, some role based on their reasoning, looking at the tree and the fruit, seeing that it was desirable and good to eat, that would give them input on ethical theory. Left continues One would think that a fully considered moral position, the product of deep and thorough intellectual activity, one that fits together in a fairly consistent whole would deserve more respect than shallow, internally inconsistent ethical decisions. But alas, he says, to think that would be to think wrong. Labor and logic have no necessary connection to ethical truth. In other words, you can labor over something all you want, and it doesn't mean that you came to the truth. And logic doesn't necessarily lead to the truth if the premise upon which the logical reasoning is predicated is wrong, so he asks this question: Should we not give more weight to a carefully weighed out and considered opinion than one that's off the cuff isn't that reasonable and And this idea of reason is one I want to come back to. We may not get to it today, but I want to come to it, but he says. But the very question is, should we not give more weight is a normative statement that requires an unquestionable evaluator. So he continues, only if someone has the power to declare careful, consistent, coherent, ethical propositions better Than the sloppier, more impulsive kinds. And who has that power? And how did he get it? Who gets to decide that? Well, the majority decided that. Well, that doesn't mean anything in a godlet system, right? We've already decided that. Well, it's per the agreement we all came up that the majority would decide. Well, who decided the agreement would bind everybody if we're all godlets? You see, when I said a couple of weeks ago, he says, once you get rid of God, there's only a small set of determinate alternatives, even available to us. And he's running through them and saying they're not working. So then he says, Can we threaten the person that has the sloppier, more impulsive kind of ethical view uh, into changing his views? Can we physically Force him to do that. We we ought to be able to do that. And there again is that word ought, right? It's a normative statement. And left rightly asks, well, where do we, those of us who think we should be able to force you to accept the better thought out position, where did we get that power? I, I mean, where did it come from? I, I mean, l- let's put it this way: If you have more guns and more military than the other guy, well. Uh, who cares that he thought out his position better and it's more reasonable? You win, right? That's how we wind up with tyrannical governments. Now, I want to come back to this issue of reason and to left's use of the word coherent and consistent. We can't live in a disordered universe. And when our minds get disordered, then that's when we have mental health problems right so we have to have order we were created for order we were created that things might make sense and when things don't make sense and that's okay with us then we've lost our sense right something's bad wrong with us but again the question comes why do we have to have a coherent and consistent system of thought and ethics, who's to say the law can't be arbitrary? Why can we not say that, oh, this this year um, you can do transgender procedures on minors, but next year you can't, but maybe the next year you can again, right? Who's to say we couldn't have a system like that? Why would, why would we say that, no, if it's wrong to do it in year one, it would be wrong to do it in year two. You just can't go back and forth. So, for example, why can't we say, as we once did, that persons with a certain level of melanin in their skin and a certain ethnic origin um, can own people of a different melanin level and a different ethnic origin? I mean, if a good law is the law produced by a system that people are willing to submit to and obey its command, the descriptivist model we talked about uh, two weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, well, then if that's what the system turns out and we obey it, how can you judge the law wrong because they followed the process? But if we're all godlets, then who can judge the other godlet's view of slavery? You can't. In other words, friends, we need to be listening in conversations with people for the words you should and you ought. They are always ethical statements and always based on some evaluator's unchallengeable position. And it's our job to notice that and to then challenge it. Okay. Even if somebody makes the statement, human beings have rights the questions should be how do you know that where do they come from you say they should have rights they ought to have rights they have rights where do they come from and who said so and why can't we change them see we 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 need to press the issue with them now i'm going to use the last few minutes of our time together today to share with you an exchange during the oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson, women's health organization, the case reversing Roe versus Wade. And the attorney general for the United States was getting ready to argue. And Justice Thomas said, counsel, I just have one question. I assume you, from your brief, you're relying on an autonomy theory. Now he's picked up that your theory is we're each godlets. And that's what he's really getting ready to inquire about here. Miss Reichelman. The attorney general arguing the case says both bodily integrity and the ability to make decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, your honor. And then Thomas follows up shortly, some years after we decided Planned Parenthood versus Casey, we had a case out of South Carolina, I believe, involved a woman who had been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during pregnancy. And her case was post-viability. And that's important because in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court said, well, prior to viability, the woman has a freedom to make the abortion decision, and you can't put an undue burden on her, and lots of regulations were stroked down. And the state's interest only began to really come into effect in terms of protecting the life uh, post-viability. Okay, and, and of course, what was being challenged in the Dobbs case was this viability standard. Is it still going to be the constitutional barometer between the autonomy of the woman and her procreative rights and the state's interest in protecting human life? So Thomas continues in this little exchange, and he asks this question. If she had ingested cocaine pre-viability, which is where the abortionists are arguing the woman has this bodily autonomy and it had the same negative consequences to her child, do you think the state had an interest in enforcing that law against her? So if it's wrong to harm the baby by ingesting cocaine post-viability, is it not wrong to do it pre-viability? You see what he's really asking? Why is it why is it wrong post-viability, but not pre-viability? What made it wrong in the one instance, in a matter of your autonomy in the other? And he says that in his very next sentence. I am trying to look at the issue of bodily autonomy and whether or not she has a right also to bodily autonomy in the case of ingesting an illegal substance and causing harm to a pre-viability fetus. Now, here's Miss Reichelman's answer, and notice it's a non-answer. Uh, Your Honor, of course, those issues aren't posed in this case. And again, I would say that the states can certainly regulate throughout pregnancy both before and after viability to preserve fetal life and to preserve the woman's health. But then here's the summation of the argument, the last thing that Reichelman says, but this case is about a ban on abortion that the state concedes is weeks before viability. We're clearly prior to viability, she said. And the court has been clear for 50 years that the one thing that states cannot do is to take the decision completely away from the woman until viability. She's autonomous, in other words. That until that point, it is her decision to make, given the unique physical demands of pregnancy and the life altering consequences of pregnancy and having a child. So you see what Thomas was doing is he's taking this assumed principle for decision-making that we're autonomous, and he's trying to say, when are we autonomous? How long are we autonomous? And why would we be autonomous pre-viability, but not post-viability? And to, to be honest, what he's looking for is coherence and consistency, and the lawyer either can't or won't answer the question. Now, the next point that I want to come back to now is the use of reason and reason is suggested to be the answer to everything and next week we're going to look at why it isn't and I'll tell you a humorous little story and experience I had about the use of reason as the basis for law from when I was in the state senate. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Back Tennessee.